Well, if you do have your Bibles, turn to Luke 10, please. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 37. Father, we thank you so much for your word for this morning, and we praise you that we have this time. We ask for you to mercifully work through me, your servant, use my mouth, my mind, my heart, my soul. May it be poured out for you and for your namesake, for your glory, and may the truth go forward to your people. And may they have ears to hear, eyes to see the truth of your word. And may it dwell deeply in our hearts and produce a hundredfold and more. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. I think it's safe to say that most of us have a desire to look good, at least acceptable. Also, not just to look good, but to be approved. We, we care what others say, we care what others think. We, uh, we want others to think we are good people. And if you don't believe me, just think of the opposite. This is certainly true. Not many of us would like to be thought of or told that we're a scumbag. It's not too, uh, too encouraging. Or how the, we're ugly and we look like a piece of dirt. That doesn't go over so well either. Or how about that you're a nasty and no good for nothing scoundrel? You like that one? None of us, none of us like to look bad, to be exposed. Most of us come here, we, the reason why we dressed the way we did, we made decisions, you're in the mirror, you washed your face, you did your hair, you put on clothes, and you made decisions. Why? To be presentable. You know you're headed somewhere. And wherever you're headed, you tried to at least, you know, do the minimum. You did the minimum, and perhaps depending on what you, where you're going or what, what you thought about it, you, uh, you might have done more than that. But you wouldn't like it too much. You don't, we don't like it when people sometimes see the real us, see perhaps a darker side, see, perhaps see even the truth about what we can be like it maybe in our thoughts or in private or when we lose it. None of us really like to be exposed in that way. And we have a tendency, a propensity towards clothing, towards covering, towards putting on, and because we want people to perceive us a particular way. Now, if you want people to think you're beautiful, you do your, yourself up so you think in your eyes you look beautiful. But then there could be, you know, in the morning you wake up and you look in the mirror and you see, you see yourself, and so does your spouse or your fa- other family members, what you look like with sleep in your eyes, hair jacked up like this, bad breath, um, not looking so hot. And there's that reality but we don't really want the world to see that reality. We want to get rid of it. We're tender little creatures who really want people to think well of us and see our best side, so to speak. We want approval. We want acceptance. And because of that, we have a hard time seeing or hearing the truth about what we're really like being exposed. In our passage this morning, we have a character who exposes 
Well, he, I'm sorry, he gets exposed. And so what's true about him is revealed to him, and he sees that he's self-righteous. And in this passage, he helps us see our own self-righteous hearts. That this is what we're like. We have a propensity and a tendency towards self-righteousness. To see ourselves or present ourselves in a certain way that's not always true. This morning, this is before us, the story of the Good Samaritan. But we're going to look at it not in the way that you might normally think. The story is often used to show what true kindness, mercy, and love toward our neighbor looks like. And how it is that we should go and do likewise. However, as we're going to see, that's not the point. It's not the point Jesus was trying to make. And Jesus told a story to a man who was seeking to justify himself. He's seeking to appear righteous before Jesus. And then Jesus puts him to the test. So when we understand the story in the proper context, we see, you know, this is not to be the example by which we're to go and do. Mind you, there's... There's truth there. Yes, this is a wonderful example of what it means to love your neighbor. But as we're going to see, that's actually not what Jesus is trying to nail here. He's trying to nail this guy and expose him. And so Jesus begins this discussion, or this, sorry, this lawyer actually begins this discussion with Jesus about how he might inherit eternal life. But yet Jesus responds to him, and as we're going to see, he wants this man to hear the truth. He wants him to feel the impact of the truth. He wants to show this man what self-righteousness looks like. And he wants to show this man how unrighteous he is. He wants him to look into the mirror of God's law. And so here's how it reads. This is how it begins, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So both Jesus and the lawyer agree that the standard of righteousness is the law of God. as it is summarized in the great commandment. The lawyer knows the great commandment in all of scripture, the thing that hinges, everything else hinges upon, all the law and the prophets are based upon, is the great commandment. This lawyer in that society, do you know what he is? He's a professional in the law of God. He studied it. Just like lawyers today study the law of the land, lawyers in that day studied the law of God. He was lived and steeped in the Torah. This is what he learned. This is what he knew. He had to know what the law was. Israel's law was the law of God. So he knows it as good as anyone. And so because he knows it, because he thinks of himself as a pretty sharp dude, I can guarantee it, what does he do? He puts Jesus to the test. That's what the text says. He tests him. Let's see what this Jesus fellow knows. Hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this wise guy had no idea. 
because it probably is going to mean when you put Jesus to the test that you're going to go away with your pants on the ground and shame on your face, so to speak. Not literally, please. But that's what Jesus tends to do. And they walk away and they have nothing more to say. Jesus wants to show and help him understand how truly it is you are going to inherit eternal life, but first of all, he has some work to do. He uses this word, you see the word inherit? That's kind of an interesting way to put it, right? Inherit eternal life? Well, think of it this way. It's the thing that you receive when you die. It's what you inherit. It's what's coming to you from your father. So your father has an inheritance for you, and when your father dies, you get the inheritance. But in this case, when you die, you get your family father's inheritance. And that, what is the inheritance? The inheritance is eternal life. So that's the way he's using it here. But Jesus doesn't answer him directly, obviously. Jesus is very clever, much more wise than this lawyer. And so instead of answering the question, he turns it to this lawyer and asks him a question. And he knows the lawyer would love to give the answer. Because in giving the answer, he could show that, yeah, Jesus, I'll show you, this rabbi, that I truly understand the law myself. He shows his stuff. And then, I love how Jesus responds. Jesus lets him know that he nailed it. Great job. What does he say? Do this, and you will live. He's saying, you've, you've basically, you've answered well. Go ahead. Do that, and you're on your way, my friend. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and eternal life is yours. The standard by which all people will be judged is whether they have loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. This is the golden standard. This is the standard of perfect love, both toward God and to all the people around us. And because God is love, we shouldn't expect anything less. If God is love, what should be God's standard? Love. Perfect love. Perfect love towards God and perfect love towards the neighbor. Now, if we look at how this law is fleshed out in the specifics, we can begin to look actually at the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments, all that is the fleshing out of loving God and loving others. And it starts by saying that you shall have no other gods before me. Which means that if we trust or serve anything other than God, we're replacing God for another God. And we've not loved Him as God. Because by definition, to be God, you have to be over all things. The giver of all things the sustainer of all things, the judge of all things. That's what it means to be God. God, by definition, is king, ruler of all, over all. Therefore, to love God, is to, is, to love Him, is to actually implicitly trust Him with all things. To praise Him for all things. So if we are trusting in people, in money, in governments, our job, bank account, or whatever, instead of God, it's idolatry. It makes us guilty of breaking the first commandment of love towards God. But then if we walk down through the rest of the commandments, we also see that we're called to love our neighbor. 
There are commands to honor our parents, not to steal from others, not to lust after someone or of the opposite sex, not to covet or want anything that a neighbor has, not to bear false witness, not to hate in our hearts, which would be murder according to Jesus. These are all expressing ways that we fail to love our neighbor, right? If you go down the Ten Commandments, you have, a, you have a pretty extensive checklist of what it means to love God and what it means to love others. And when we fully understand them and we flesh them out, we realize this has, this has tremendous implications in every area of life. And if we love God perfectly and if we love our neighbor perfectly, guess what? You will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, absolutely. So true. Now, here's how the lawyer responds to him in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So typical, because the self-righteous always, always redefine the terms to justify themselves. The lawyer knew that he hadn't loved others like he loves himself. He would have known in his heart that there were several people and people groups that he actually hated. But more importantly, Jesus knew who this guy hated. Jesus knew that he had a severe hatred for the Samaritans. And how do we know that? Well, Jesus proceeds here to illustrate for this lawyer who his neighbor is with a story about a Jewish priest, a Jewish Levite, and a Samaritan. He begins by saying, A certain man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and is beaten by thugs and thrown in a ditch to die. But then a priest walks by, sees it, and make sure he avoids it and goes on the other side. Next comes a Levite. What does he do? The same thing. So you have a man beaten up and bloody, and the priest and the Levite walk on by as far away as they can get from him on the path. They don't so much as want to get near this guy. And right away, in hearing a story like this, the idea of it is that you get a sense of indignation towards them. Almost like, you jerks. It's clear and it's obvious this guy is in serious trouble, left for dead. And you walk on by? The point of it is to get you to sense, ooh, these guys are ruthless. These guys are a little cold. You just walk on by. Huh. We should sense an injustice was committed. We know in our consciences that that's the case. And we think and feel, yeah, you know what? These guys are, they sound like the priest and the Levite. Not too nice of fellows. How could you just walk by someone's half dead and just leave them? How could you do that? Well, Here's, here's what adds to this whole story. This man was going down from 
from Jerusalem to Jericho, which likely means, most likely, this person was a Jew who was in the ditch. And I can say this because Jesus was trying to make this obvious by the fact that, A, he's going down from Jerusalem. He points that out. The most Jewish Jewish city there was. And B, it sharply makes the point about the Samaritan being the person who, st- who stops. It, it, it accentuates this. It like, all of a sudden, it's understood in this lawyer's mind, he knows who was probably in the ditch. It's a Jew. He knows who passed by, a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite. And in the story, it makes the priest and the Levite all the more guilty. The other aspect that's obvious here, but is unspoken, is that the lawyer would know exactly why Jesus said that the priest and the Levite walked past on the other side. It was because this person was bloodied. And it's because these people see themselves as holy and pure and never want to become undefiled. And if they touch something bloody, they would become unclean. They represent the, the lawyer, I'm sorry, the, the priest and the Levite represent to the lawyer the pinnacle of their society in terms of holiness, in terms of cleanliness, in terms of righteousness. If you want to get two examples of the most righteous in society because they're pure, they're undefiled, they're, they're, they're not unclean, you'd pick the priest and the Levite. The priest and the Levite. Who passes by the dirty, the dirty bloodied, beaten up man in the ditch? The Jewish man, his own countrymen, and the ones who are supposed to be the most holy. Jesus knows that this lawyer hates Samaritans. He knows that he sees them as unclean dogs, dirty folks, these Samaritans, half-breeds. They don't serve God. They don't love Yahweh the way we do. They're not as pure as we are. They're They're unclean. Yet who does Jesus have loving his neighbor in this story? Samaritan. And who does he have as the unloving neighbor? the most holy people in Israel. There's no way this lawyer at this point now can redefine who his neighbor is and who it is he's supposed to love. He's exposed as unrighteous, unholy, and unloving. How easy is it for us as well to justify ourselves? How easy is it for us to redefine what is, what is holy, what is true, what is good, what is loving? And then because we redefine, allows us to do what it is we want to do. If you were to hang around a bunch of lying, cheat, and thieves, and you didn't lie, cheat, or steal, you would begin to see yourself as pretty upright, wouldn't you? And all of a sudden, the definition of righteousness is what? It's comparative. It's comparative me to these guys, and comparatively, as I look at righteousness, I'm way more righteous than they are. And therefore, I can become very self-righteous. Just to, or just redefine why you do what you do, your motive. Aren't, you, aren't we able to do that? If we def- redefine our motives for why we do something, what does that allow us to do? It allows us to be justified in what it is we're doing. So we can do the most awful things. We can sin 
in horrible ways, but as long as we redefine why it is we're doing and we give ourselves a pure motive, all of a sudden we can justify what it is we're doing. So when people irritate you or drive you absolutely bonkers and you begin to hate them or you resent them or you wish they were wiped off the planet, it isn't hard to justify your unrighteous heart. After all, those people are nasty. Just simply redefine love or redefine neighbor or redefine the enemies of God and who God, God hates them too, we just say. And then your actions seem righteous. Just think about how easy it is when people start doing things that you don't like and you, you become very indignant toward them. In, in today's age, you, you can go on social media, right? Your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. And you can get information about people and you see what people are doing. And, and recently, we see a lot of what people are doing. We see a lot of people groups. We can, everything from the, we can see that what some nasty, militant Muslims are doing. We can see what these crazy, bonker liberals are doing. Some of them are rising up and doing things that are, are, are unreal. And as you're going through your Facebook feed, perhaps, do you ever start to feel a little bit of resentment? Do you ever start to be like, I can't stand these nasty people. These guys, and then you start to figure, you've got a group of people and you start to can't stand what they're saying, you can't stand what they're doing, you can't stand what, they're rep, what they represent, anything about it. And, and all of a sudden that group starts to, it gets in you and you're like, eh, I'd like to wipe them people out. Of, at least I can delete them. And as a, <laughs> and as a result, and it, we, we justify that. We think, God himself hates these people. Why? Because look at them. Look what they say. Look what they do. And, that, and we feel justified in our condemnation of them and our hatred towards them. And next thing we know, you know, the, we know that God says, love, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then we're starting to say, who's my neighbor? I mean, really? They're not my neighbor. I don't live next to them. They don't live anywhere near me. They're on the other side. Of the... I don't even know where they live. In fact, they seem like a long way away. And I, all I know is they're not my neighbor. Because they're idiots. And if they were my neighbor, I'd move. So that's what we do. We justify our actions. We redefine the terms. We start to ask, say things like, well, who's really my neighbor? And when we do that, all of a sudden, it's, we start to feel a sense of self-righteousness. We start to look at them as unrighteous, and we start to see this chasm. And then we, we feel like all the, we, we have all the reason in the world as to why what we're doing is right. We feel right about it. And we're no different than this lawyer who resented and hated the Samaritans because everything they said, everything they did, everything they standed for, they're just those nasty people. Up there, you, you should see. You should see those Samaritans. You see their Facebook feed. Oh man, when they do that little Twitter thing, they put those comments on there. I was like, I want to just smear that thing all over the place. It's awful. Can't stand those people. And so, Christians, this is what we do. We act just like him. 
because we have a tendency and a propensity to be self-righteous. We see ourselves in comparison to them. We redefine the terms of what really righteousness is, what love is. And then we say, yeah, yeah, in what I'm doing here, I'm completely justified. It isn't difficult for us to act just like this lawyer because we have the same desire in our hearts to justify ourselves even in our sinfulness and redefine the terms. How many of you have ever done sinned? You knew you sinned. You knew you didn't want to stop the sin. And so you knew you had to do something. And what do you tend to do? Redefine sin. Redefine start to say, well, God's concerned about the heart and he looks at the motive and he'll see that my motive is pure in this. Yeah, he will see. And he'll see that that's nothing but a crock. And that's, that's you lying to yourself, justifying what it is you're doing. I guarantee if you're involved in any kind of sin right now, I could say prophetically, I know what's going on in your heart. You're redefining sin. You're redefining the terms. You are justifying your actions because you have one option. Either redefine, uh, re- redefine the terms or repent. We can't handle that place of like, I know it's wrong, but I, I'm, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that. There's several people who'll do it. But you have to, at some point, you have to jam God. And you have to say, I don't care. And you have to defiantly do it in his face. But if you don't want to do that, you have to redefine the terms and somehow justify what it is you're doing. So if you find yourself redefining the terms, justifying your motives or anything, and no matter what you do, you're in a bad place. And this is what you need. To, you need this. You need to be exposed by the truth. The self-righteous and our self-righteous propensities need to get exposed. Verse 30 30 through 37, in the rest of this story, when Jesus hits the punchline, the truth of the situation would have deeply exposed and wounded the lawyer. The Samaritan in this story, according to verse 33, had compassion. And out of that love and compassion... He was moved to do something. He went down into the ditch. He cleaned up the man's wounds. He put bandages on him, put him on his mule or donkey or whatever it was. It says his animal. Obviously didn't matter. Took him to an inn and he cared for him. And then the next day when the Samaritan had to go and take care of business, what did he do? He gave the innkeeper enough money to cover the expenses to, to take care of this man. This whole story is laden with the truth about how, what real love looks like. And it's emotionally charged. That's the, that's the way, telling a story like this and putting the characters he does in place makes this story incredibly charged with emotion and it hits hard, it exposes. It would have stabbed the lawyer deep within his heart. He would have been exposed because he could identify himself with the priest and the Levite. He would have been able to see and experience what true righteousness looks like through the actions of Who? Samaritan. That unclean dog is more righteous than I. He also would have felt shamed 
shamed by the actions of the Samaritan as he humbly and lovingly is exposed as a self-righteous Jew. Jesus places all the lawyer's self-justifying prejudices within this story. And as he does, the lawyer begins to see that God's standard is not too nice to him. And if God is gracious and the lawyer sees himself for who he truly is, he would come to that place, to that wonderful place. Oh no. I am an an unrighteous wretch. Oh. I am guilty. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I don't love God the way I I think I love God. And you know what? In reality, when when we encounter the truth of God's word, we encounter the truth of his law, do you know what's supposed to happen when you see the truth of it? You see yourself in light of it? The most glorious thing that ever could happen is you... As you go before God, oh Lord, woe is me. I'm just like the lawyer. Oh Lord, woe is me. I'm so unlike that Samaritan, that good Samaritan. You know, the standard of God's there, law, sorry, is not there to justify you, it's there to condemn you. Romans chapter 3. 19 through 20 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Just some mouths? No. Every mouth. And then then this is the next line. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law, you know what comes? The knowledge of sin. Not your own righteousness. So the law is not intended to show us how it is that we can inherit eternal life. The lawyer, they, the lawyer knew what the centerpiece of the law was, but he didn't know what it was tr- seeking to do. He's thinking, yeah, as long as I redefine, as long as I like, yeah, I, I can see how I, yeah, I love God and love my neighbors myself for sure. Phew. Eternal life's mine. But like the story of the good Samaritan, exposes us and shows us that we will never inherit eternal life through our own righteousness. Ever. Why? Because he exposes how we do not love our neighbors like we ought to. This good Samaritan puts you to shame. This good Samaritan exposes your own lack of love. This good Samaritan says, you know, this isn't a story about how you can inherit eternal life. This isn't a story about, hey, this is the kind of righteousness you need to perform. And yes, you do need to do this, but that's not the point. The point is, if you, if you think you're righteous, if you think you're good before God, if you, if you trust at all in your law-keeping, you just need to be exposed to the truth of who you are in God's true law. 
the proper lesson to be learned from the law of God is this. Wow. I'm a sinner through and through. Because God's law, like a mirror, shows you what you look like. As I said at the beginning, the mirror reveals the truth. When you wake up in the morning and you get before that mirror and sleep in your eye and groggy and you look up, and you probably don't like the look. And what, what do you like about it? The truth. It's reality. It's saying, speaking to you like, man... I need to wash my face or something. I need to do something. It's not very good. Something needs to change. And God's law, like a mirror, shows you what you look like in reality. It reveals the truth. And like our mirror at home, when we look truthfully, we don't always like what the mirror tells us. Especially when we're trying to lose weight. A mirror doesn't lie and we don't like it. We don't like what the mirror says because it tells the tru- truth and we keep, what do we do? When it does tell us the truth about what's the situation, what do we tend to do? We tend to look and say, what must I do to be better? What must I do to be better? And so we look at the mirror, the mirror tells us the truth, and then we start to see the changes we need to make. So we start to make the changes because it reveals the truth about what's really going on. In in a sense, it reflects repentance. We see the truth, we see the reality, and what do we need? Where do we need to repent? How do we need to turn? And like the law of God, it points us, it should point us, and the whole point was to say, don't come here to get your righteousness. It, It isn't here. Because here's some good news, and this was the point. Jesus often wants everybody to see something. He wants them to see how they stand before God and his law. What do you you look like before God? You have to come to that place when you see that you, you know, you're not half good, three quarters good, you know, 95% good. I just, he just needs to top me up a little bit. No, I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, no. And I don't love my neighbor as myself. And that should create a tension. And we go, oh man. Some people say, I need to make some changes in my life. I really need to start loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I need to start loving my neighbor as myself. I can see that I got some work to do because if God's going to accept me, I've really got to start. I got to increasing, you know, I got to work on my heart. My soul, my mind, and my strength. And i got to increase these. And if I can increase these, then I know God would love me and accept me. And if I started acting more like the Good Samaritan, and, I, and, I knew, and if I started making these changes, I know I need to make these changes, and I know that if I do that, then God will accept me, because then I'll, then I'll be righteous before him. That is a lie up and down, through and through, and the law needs to beat you around yet even more. Jesus might even send you away to go figure that out. He'll tell you something really hard until you get to that place where you say, oh no, <laughs> oh no. I, I need, God, I need you to make me righteous. Because unless you make me righteous, there's no hope. 
I need, I need a righteousness that's apart from the law and law keeping. I need a righteousness. I need, I need the gift of righteousness because, Lord, look at me. That's exactly what he does. Right after what he said about the law in Romans 3, in verse 20, he says this in Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, which is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here is what he's saying. But now something happened. The righteousness of God has been revealed to us, made manifest to us. The the actual righteousness of God has been revealed to us. In Jesus Christ, he stood before us and walked amongst us and he dwelt there. This is the righteousness of God. And he says, this, this, was witnessed to and testified to by the law and prophets. This righteousness, which is apart from the law and the prophets, was testified to and witnessed to by the law and the prophets. And he says, And this righteousness of God is given to all and upon all who believe. The gift of God. So the very righteousness that we need and we long for to stand with confidence and without guilt and without shame before God to be holy, righteous, and acceptable does not come through any law-keeping. It's given to us from God as a free gift in Jesus Christ. All the law and the prophets said to us was this, you're guilty. You're a sinner. Sinner, sinner, guilty, 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 guilty. This is the standard, and guess what, folks? You don't meet it. And if you think you can or will, keep trying, keep jumping, keep working, because you, until you get to the place where you say, Oh, Lord, I can't. I'm an unrighteous man with, with unclean hands and a dirty heart, and, and I don't love you the way I should love you, and I don't love my neighbor as myself, and Lord, look at me. Oh, Lord, I need, I'm full of guilt and I'm full of shame and I'm full of weakness. Look at me, oh, Lord. I want to be righteous. I want to be righteous in your sight, but I'm not. Oh, Lord, please. The heart that gets to that place is being exposed by the law. It's the gift of God. And then you can see yourself for who you truly are in the mirror of God's law. And now here comes a righteousness apart from the law. The gift of God says, I'll make you as righteous as as me, myself, my righteousness. You didn't earn this. You didn't do anything for this. And every, in fact, you did everything not to deserve this. But here is my righteousness. You ready for this? Here is my righteousness. My righteousness I bestow upon you. Well, how was this? I didn't do anything. You're right. It's a gift. The gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came so that his people and those who believe in his name would receive his righteousness and become as holy as God is holy, apart from the law. And that, my friends, is incredibly good news. It's incredibly good news to any heart that's burdened with guilt, with shame, with their sense of who they are, with their sense of your lack of locking, your lack of ability to keep God's word. If, it, if his law seems like you're doing really well and you're checking off all the boxes and you seem to be doing really great and you haven't been exposed and you haven't been, this hasn't been revealed to you really how sinful you are, well, the law still has got a lot of work to do in your heart. 
But when you do get to that place, and you get to the place where you see yourself and you realize, Lord, I bring nothing to you. All, even my good, my best days, my best works, they're tainted. They're nasty. I I know my heart. I know me. I know who I am. I know where I'm at. You get to that place. That's a beautiful place. As you're broken, you're humbled by the law, you come before God and you see Jesus and he says, I'll make you righteous. I wash you, I clean you, I cleanse you. But I didn't do anything. You're right. This is love. And and yet, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. That you might become the righteousness of God through nothing that you've done, but through the work of Christ alone. And this is why, in this story, Jesus exposes the lawyer's self-righteousness. This is why it's a glorious gift that he's giving to this man. This is why he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And this is what we're to learn from this. And as you see the truth of God's law and what it's supposed to do, and the truth of what Jesus Christ came to do, you see the glorious good news and have reason to rejoice. Amen. Father, we're so thankful for what Jesus has done. We praise you, O Lord. I, I, I thank you that you've exposed my heart, my mind, my soul. And I saw, Lord, because you opened my eyes that I, I am not righteous. I do not keep your law. But yet you allowed me to see Jesus, my righteousness. The one, the perfect law keeper who gives your righteousness as a gift. Father, I pray for everybody here, and I ask, O Lord, that every individual here would come to grips with who they are before you and your law, that they would see that they are not righteous, that they are unholy, that they're impure in every way, that their hearts are not undefiled, their hands are unclean, but yet they would see that they can be washed and made pure and completely holy through Jesus. Help us to see this, O Lord. Give us eyes to see your grace and love. In Christ we ask. Amen.